Hello, good evening. Good evening, everyone. Um, this is a really packed house. Um, it's just an incredible feeling to know how many people are dedicated to be here and wanting to learn together as a community in this way. Uh, welcome to Narrative Medicine Rounds. This is the first rounds of this fall. My name is Deepu Gowda. I'm a general internist here. I practice uh, hospital medicine. And I direct, uh, I'm the director of clinical practice for the program in narrative medicine. And what that is, is we're interested to think about how we can leverage what we can learn from literature and art, dance, creative writing, to think about how we might be able to inform and transform clinical practice. In this field of narrative medicine that we're all engaged in here, whether you realize it or not, you being here means you're part of the narrative medicine community. This field that we're all engaged in continues to expand. You know, currently we have a well-established required course in narrative medicine for all medical students at Columbia. We have electives in narrative medicine. We have a scholarly track in narrative medicine where students can go more deeply and do scholarly work in narrative medicine. We have now a firmly established, rigorous master's program in narrative medicine. And we're a couple of years into a Certificate of Professional Achievement in Narrative Medicine, which is an online program, several courses taught by the same faculty who teach the master's program. And the course is taken by people all over the world who are engaged in the methods that have been developed here over the many years in narrative medicine. And what's interesting is that the work keeps expanding from the classroom to the real world, to the clinical space, right? And we are actively engaged in research, innovation, expanding in this way. And what's interesting is the CPA program, the Certificate of Professional Achievement, a large percentage of those people are practicing clinicians. So they're trying to figure out ways that they can engage with literature, engage in communities of learning to be able to think about how we can transform our own clinical practice so that it is more in alignment with listening deeply to patients. Um, I have some good news to tell you. Uh, so there's the National Endowment for the Humanities uh, every year uh, puts on a lecture, the Jefferson Lecture. And it honors, uh, it's the highest recognition of a lecture of someone who does scholarship in the humanities. And this coming year they select Dr. Rita Sharon to give that lecture. It's a huge honor and a testament to what Rita has done. But it is also a recognition of what's happening with this field. Because we're thinking about narrative medicine as this bridge between the sciences and the arts. And we've talked about how narrative medicine is impacting clinical practice. But what's interesting is it's also reaching across the aisle and impacting what humanities is. It's helping humanities reconfigure their own identity, thinking about how it can serve as an instrumental role to make change in the world. So the person who's going to be introducing our speaker today is Dr. David Chong, here with this beautiful yellow tie. Um, so Dr. Chong is a critical care specialist. He runs the critical care services for New York Presbyterian Columbia and Cornell. He is the director of the House Staff Training Program at Columbia. Um, 
the recipient of numerous teaching awards. Uh, I got to know David when I was an intern. Uh, I did my internship here at Columbia. And when I was in the medical ICU, he was my attending. And the medical ICU is a scary place for an intern. It's complicated. The pathophysiology is complicated. The machines are new. The patients are the sickest in the hospital, probably the sickest in the city. This, the case is oftentimes riddled with complexities that are ethical or spiritual, psychic, right? People are grappling with existential challenges. And it's an intimidating place to train. But David had this amazing ability to demand and create a culture of excellence while still fostering a culture of respect, of deep listening, of care and concern for patients, for families, for the staff, for the residents, even the lowly intern, right? Um, and I think that says a lot about David and how he approaches uh, clinical care. And it was very evident to us that our job was uh, singular, to meet the needs of the people who are sick and to meet the needs of their families. And sometimes those needs were you know, providing a curative treatment to help those patients get out of the ICU and get back home. And other times it's meeting the needs of the patient and families when the patient is gravely ill, when they're not going to be able to leave the ICU. And, and we were unified in that. And it, it is only fitting that David is going to be introducing our speaker tonight, uh, who shares that mission and that sensitivity uh, to thinking deeply about the needs of the people who are most sick and considering what to do at end of life. So with that, David Chong. Thank you, Deepu. Um, I wish my mother were here to hear that. Um, <laughs> if you could repeat that, I could send it to her in Florida. It would be wonderful. Um, I have the distinct honor of um, introducing um, Dr. Haider Warish, who um, has written a book. And um, it's about death, which is probably not the uh, easiest thing to sell, but he was able to write this book before he was actually going to sell the book, which is remarkable. Um, so I want to uh, thank Rita for um, volunteering me to introduce him, because it really reads as um, an experience of his residency, but it's scholarly at the same time. So it's a beautiful amalgamation of his experience, um, mostly in the ICU around death, and how he understood death, and how it impacted his patients, and put it in a, a fashion that was not just human, but scholarly at the same time. There are over 600 references. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Warish. He is an immigrant. Um, he is a physician. He is a researcher, a writer. And like me, um, he's an immigrant from uh, Pakistan. And in his short eight years here, he's done probably more than I've done in my entire lifetime. Um, and so he's accomplished much. And he is, um, uh, I believe, the best of our field. Um, what's amazing about him is that he came in 2010 to do his residency in internal medicine at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston. He stayed on to do one year of hospitalists is when he actually wrote this book about 
modern death and how um, medicine has changed the end of life. Um, he is married. He has um, a, a two-year-old daughter now. I, I don't know how this is possible that he could do all this and write a book. Um, his wife must be a wonderful editor and a saint at the same time. He is now a, an advanced heart failure fellow at, um, at Duke, where he finished his cardiology fellowship as well. What's amazing about um, Dr. Warish is that he has also been published in the New York Times. Um, in, uh, he's been featured in CNN, Fox, and PBS, which I don't think a lot of people have had that combination. <laughs> he's written for The Guardian, uh, The Atlantic, uh, The Lancet. He's been published in the New England Journal. But the thing that was really impressive to me was he was on... Terry Gross's uh, Fresh Air. So that's impressive. And Terry has this way of making you cry. And he cried on Fresh Air. She got him to cry. And, and, I, and, I, and I remember listening to it. It was, it was wonderful. I've read his book. And what's amazing about this book also is that you don't realize that it's taking you... Um, he takes you through about 500 years of the understanding of death. He starts with the cell, and he somehow lets you understand autophagy and apoptosis without like falling asleep. And then he brings you all the way up to the social networks and talks about death. Um, I, I really enjoyed reading the book. It, it was a pleasure reading it. And I think any clinician who works in the ICU would really love reading this because it's about the patients. It's about the humanness of death. And then he gives you the context of where we are and how things are changing and the challenges that um, uh, await us in the future. And so as strange as it might seem, the book is really um, ends with hope. And he talks about um, discussion and about openness about death as opposed to hiding it and sort of being afraid of it. And I think the people that work in the ICU welcome the discussion about death because it is um, a part of what we do. It's not the only thing that we do, but it is a big part of what we do, that, that death is not the enemy. It's not failure. One of the reasons why Rita asked me to uh, introduce him is because I have a big um, uh, fascination with the understanding that as I train physicians, they feel like when their patients die, they have made a mistake. And the truth is, we all die. I die, I will die. I will probably die in this hospital. But <laughs> death, like taxes, are inevitable. So when young physicians are at the end of the road with a patient, and they happen to be the one where, where they actually have to declare the patient dead, somehow it's their fault because physicians think that they have the answers to everything. And the truth is that um, it is bigger than us and that it's not a failure. It is how we die that's so important. It's not whether we die or not. And so that's what um, this book is so much about, about sort of how it is that we die and why it is that we think the way we do and perhaps we should change. Um, so um, it is my pleasure to introduce a much younger and more accomplished man who decided to do cardiology, although he 
reads like he should be an intensivist. Um, uh, it's my pleasure to um, introduce Haider Barish um, to the podium. Did we record this? I'd love for my mom to actually hear this as well. Um, <clears throat> well, um, you know, what can I say? Thank you so much uh, to everyone for um, taking time to come here. I'm so, so honored that Ria invited me to be able to come to this, uh, this great venue, to this great community, to really uh, share a real piece of myself uh, and my life with you. And um, I guess one of the things that has already been touched upon is that uh, growing, growing up in, um, in Pakistan, English was, was a second language for me. I didn't really, you know, grow, in, uh, grow into English. I had to learn it uh, sitting in upright chairs in rooms very much such as this. And it was a very deliberate and uh, meticulous process, one that continues to this very day. In fact, just today I learned what a penny loafer is. It's <laughs> um, a type of shoe, um, and uh, the one word in English that I've always I'd always been uh, pulled towards, and one that at least to me didn't really have a true sort of like parallel in my native language of uh, Urdu, uh, was this word. It was beauty. I've, I was always fascinated by, you know, how can how can beauty mean different things for different people, and if if beauty means different things to different people, what is the, um, you know, what is the hallmark of beauty? What is the unifying feature of beauty? I've always wondered. But before we try to answer that question, I I, I wanted to talk a bit about something else, which is which bears a lot of similarities with it. Something that many of us search for on an almost daily basis, and perhaps more so with the people in this room, is that we're always searching for meaning. We're always constantly asking ourselves, you know, why do we do certain things the way we do them, why we do them, or why do we do them at all? Um, you know, to, I think of meaning as like this sort of secret text that we hope we will find in the worlds around us that will help us kind of figure out what's going on. It's like, you know, it's like subtitles we're hoping will appear on the bottom of the screen to really help us understand what the hell is going on. But at least to me, um, meaning is important also because all of us, we embark on these long, tiring, expensive, and painful journeys in search of meaning, both within our personal lives and within our professions. And, and finding meaning is important not only because it's the fuel that keeps us going, but, it's, but because we also know of so many who, who failed to find meaning and have, and have found themselves lost and disillusioned. So, so even as um, you know, even as we search for meaning in the world around us, to me, the search for meaning is an inward journey. I don't think that meaning is a quality that exists in the world around us, but is a narrative that we find within ourselves and then paint the world with it. And that's where beauty, I think, is different because the search for beauty is an outward journey. It is something that we hope to find in the world and in the in, in its inhabitants. And what is perhaps the most magical thing about beauty is, in fact, the fact that it can't be defined. And 
especially in our modern world where it seems like the only things that count are the ones that can be counted, I feel like beauty is such a compelling concept because it eludes any degree of quantification. But the search for beauty is not just a trivial pursuit. It is essential for our very survival, particularly as physicians and nurses or anyone really who's taking care of patients. You know, almost on a daily basis, no matter what we do in healthcare, we find ourselves surrounded by suffering. We see so many people who are in pain, um, and along the way, we endure a lot of pain ourselves. The, the rate of burnout amongst physicians is sky high, and in fact, the second most common cause of death amongst medical trainees is suicide. And with, with two out of three Americans now dying under the watch of a physician or a nurse in a healthcare facility, we're tasked with the, for perhaps the most difficult search of all, which is the search for beauty in the arms of death. Many here in this room have been searching for beauty without perhaps calling it as such. You know, a programmer may find beauty in a well-designed algorithm. A salesperson in someone may find beauty in, you know, helping connect a consumer with a product that they love. But I'll be honest with you, when I started medical school, I found no beauty in anything that I was doing, in my textbooks and amongst my teachers. Because, you see, a strange turn of events brought me to medical school, one that I haven't put down in any of my innumerable personal statements, but I thought I'd share with you. See, back when I was in high school, there was this girl I liked, but she lived in a different city. She lived close to this place which had, which, uh, to a great medical school, so I thought it was a great idea that I should apply to medical school so I can be close to her. And so I applied to medical school, and I got there, and I realized that I'd made a terrible mistake. <laughs> you see, I went to medical school, like I, I'm sure many others, of these visions that you know, would be full of people with hearts and empathy and vision. But when I, when I got there, I realized that medical school was just like college. It was a rat race, only with more jacked-up rats. <laughs> So, you know, kind of feeling lost and disillusioned, I picked up a camera and deliberately looked away from uh, anything to do with me medicine. And, and, and yet, I still found so much beauty around me. But, but somehow, I, I almost always found beauty in broken down things. And because it's, it's, it's hard to sh uh, sort of tell you that, it's easier to sort of show you. I'll, I'll share some of the pictures I took back in medical school during the course of this talk. So even as I you know, found beauty all around me in wheelchairs and broken down construction sites, um, clinical medicine just kind of seemed out of reach. Um, being a medical student was my introduction to what it feels like to be in a foreign country. Uh, you know, Everywhere I went, whether it was in the clinic or in the operating room, I found myself surrounded by people who uh, you know, spoke a different language, uh, they observed a different set of, set of rituals, and I, al I always felt like I was crashing a party no one wanted me to be at. But it was after I moved to Boston for residency that I started to, I began to see the layers in the work that we do as clinicians. 
you know, perhaps as an, even as an intern, I was unable to do that because I was just consumed with the most basic of things like um, not being wrong, not causing any harm, mastering the computer system, making sure all the nurses liked me, uh, <laughs> making sure I knew where all the free coffee was, that the, that, the, that the sheer beauty of what I was doing just kind of seemed to bounce right off of me. And medical training was also the first time I had had any type of sustained and serious contact with death. I mean, before that, I you know, I'd never even thought about death in a sort of serious way, and when the burden of the end of life fell on me, I was completely unprepared for it. You see, like so many others, and as uh, has been alluded to already, I had been taught that death was the enemy. But if that was the case, everywhere I looked, I saw us fighting a losing battle. And such a weight can cause anyone to burn out and lose their way. And I felt like I was a witness to you know, these unspoken tragedies that occur when people die in the hospital. And at the heart of my disillusionment was this dysfunctional relationship I had with death. Uh, you know, to me at that point, I felt like I had only two choices. One was to just wall myself off uh, and just go numb all over. And the other was to uh, continue to let death kind of crush me in the slow and drawn out grind. And it was, it was then that, you know, when I was truly felt like I was on my last legs that I began reluctantly to write. And initially I wrote just to document sort of everyday events so I could make sense of them. Things that went well, things that went badly, things that were just foul. But most of all, I wrote to find um, the beautiful things that had been staring at me all along. It was kind of like research without the math, but with all the sense of discovery. And writing really helped me view death differently. While initially I felt overwhelmed by the sense of things ending and by the gruesome imagery, I began to see that tucked within the tragedies were moments of sheer beauty. And in this piece, which I will read to you, that journey from darkness to light is fully captured. Before I was an intern standing in the middle of the night over a pale, motionless woman about to certify her death, I had a very different vision of what a person's final moment would be like. Like many young people, my exposure to death was confined to stories others had told me or depictions of deaths on television. I didn't see the true face of death until I was the one filling out the death certificate. These days, only about one in three people die at home. Most die in hospitals or nursing homes. A unique and telling set of rituals has grown to be associated with death and dying in the hospital. In hospitals, death has many faces depending on how aggressively the patient is being treated. For patients who desire a full court press to the very end, their last moments usually include a physician like me performing CPR with the base of his palms, elbows locked but this can be a gruesome sight. Once I performed CPR on a patient who was getting dialysis through a tube in his abdomen, 
Every time I compressed the chest, a jet of fluid from his belly would spray out. Very soon, my entire shirt was covered with the patient's abdominal fluid, and the floor was so slippery I feared losing my balance. This macabre theater is usually continued until the supervising physician decides to call it off. Everyone then goes back to their respective jobs, waiting for the overhead announcement of the code blue to sound again. Increasingly, though, when death is imminent and more treatment futile, many patients and their family members seek a different end. One of my patients with incurable liver cancer put it best, despite speaking minimal English. No pain, no cry, just peace. If a family is around a patient who is close to dying, hospitals will frequently have a cart of coffee and cookies brought in. I once picked up one of those cookies and the nurse immediately called out, you shouldn't eat that. I said, why not? It's a death cookie. It's bad luck to have one. Another telltale sign that death is looming is the television channel that the nurses often turn on in the patient's room. A popular one is the Care Channel, which shows slow-moving nature scenes with ambient sounds and low-key music. While innocuous enough, just hearing the descent of a waterfall or the crickets in a forest now triggers my memories of some of the darkest nights in the hospital. The pronouncement itself is very ceremonial in nature. I was working overnight during my intern year when the nurse paged me saying that one of the patients she had been taking care of had stopped breathing. Immediately, I asked her if she had called a code blue, but she told me the patient had not wished to be resuscitated. She asked me to come pronounce her dead. Having never done a pronouncement before, I asked my supervising resident who gave me a checklist. When I walked into the room, it was unlike a normal hospital room. The stillness was eerie. I followed the steps as I had been instructed. I lowered the sheet from the patient's face to reveal an elderly woman pale as paper. Her mouth was wide open, her eyes shut tight. I had never met her while she was alive. I put my fingers to her wrist and felt no pulse. I listened to her chest and I could hear no heart sounds. Last though, to check whether her brain was functioning, I had to assess whether she was retaining some basic brain reflexes. I pried her eye open with my fingers. I then poked the corner of her eye with my gloved finger to see if she would blink. I could think of nothing else that felt like the moist, gelatinous, and perfectly still eyeball of a freshly deceased person. She didn't blink, and therefore it was official. The ritual conducted for anyone who dies in the hospital was completed. While for a family, a death can be a moment of deep emotional significance, the reality is that as a doctor pronouncing the death, my experience is dominated by something very mundane, paperwork. Instead of being able to be fully present for the family, my time is usually spent trying to fill out the death certificate, assessing whether the case needs to be referred to the medical examiner, contacting the organ donor services if indicated, contacting the patient's family and the primary care physician, as well as other medical teams involved in caring for the patient, and consulting the patient's next of kin about whether they would want an autopsy performed. The hospital, too, eulogizes the most tragic of deaths in its own special way. Deaths that are deemed to be either caused by some error or those that occur under unusual circumstances are, or carry some important learning uh, point are presented to the medical staff in the form of a morbidity and mortality conference. The medical details are listed in a straightforward manner with all of the patient's personal traits drained out. 
Much like the overarching experience of patienthood, the end of life has been sterilized. For most of human history, death has been an intensely spiritual experience. Frequently, some religious figure, a pastor or a shaman, would be at a patient's side at the end to help make it a deep and meaningful experience, not only for the patient, but also for his family and friends. These days, instead of a shaman, patients are surrounded by strangers in scrubs. Death, one of the most complex events that can occur in the hospital, is usually handled by the youngest physicians. Since the start of my residency, I have pronounced countless patients, many of whom I had never met and many of whom I had gotten to know very well. With time and experience, I've learned that when a patient passes away, my responsibility is to be more than just someone who checks off the boxes. Recently, I pronounced a woman who had melanoma that had spread to the brain. The cancer was so advanced that it was causing her to have continuous seizures that he couldn't control. She decided she wanted to stop trying to fight the cancer and receive only palliative care in the hospital. She just wanted to be comfortable. When I walked into a room after the nurse told me she had passed away, her husband and daughter were sitting by the bed. The husband whom I had gotten to know stood up. They had put on some jazz music in the background. The daughter was holding her mother's hand. They weren't angry, they weren't remorseful. They were happy. She's in a better place, they said. Her suffering is over. Usually in these moments, my instinct is to not linger, but this was different. Instead of poking her eyeball, I sat down and talked to them about her, asking about her life and about what she loved about jazz. It was the most full of life room I had been to in a long time. I realize now that this family had, they had, they had given me a gift. They had shown me that sometimes beauty is shrouded in the darkest of places. Writing really helped lift a great weight off my shoulders. You know, most authors have to go, you know, looking for stories. Uh, you know, like Hemingway had to fight in the Great War or learn how to fight bulls, and all I have to do is just show up for work. <laughs> and whether it's early in the morning when I'm trying to wake my patients up from their ambient-induced slumber, or editing copy-pasted notes in the afternoon, our, parents, our patients' stories have a way of finding us, whether we want them to or not. And the single most important thing I've learned is that even though many times, you know, we doctors, nurses, pastors, we can feel like we are bystanders to tragedy, we all have one special superpower. I found that not only can beauty exist in the arms of death, there are times that we can, in fact, create beauty at the end of life. And sometimes these moments occur spontaneously, such as the one that occurred between me and that family, but sometimes they require effort. And as I learned while I was writing this next piece, sometimes the search for beauty can be a shared journey, one that we embark on as a team and as a family rather than by ourselves. There wasn't going to be a happy ending. The patient had metastatic cancer and had just gone through her third unsuccessful regimen of chemotherapy. Now it seemed that everywhere we looked, we found disease. An x-ray of her belly revealed an obstruction in her intestines. A CT scan of her chest uncovered a pulmonary embolism. 
Her labs demonstrated that she had almost no white blood cells left with which to defend herself. When she arrived in the intensive care unit, she was delirious. I asked her the usual questions about her medical history and whether she wanted us to do CPR, but she didn't answer. I was just setting the clipboard aside when she raised a hand and told me in a moment of rare lucidity, Doc, do everything you can. I need to make it to my daughter's wedding. She was in a lot of pain. She had a tube down her nose, draining her stomach. When is the wedding, I asked. Next summer. I blinked. I blinked again. But she didn't. She was looking right at me. At this point, I doubted she would make it through the hospitalization, let alone eight more months. I didn't know what I could say. I put the stethoscope against her chest and retreated into silence. I met Stephanie, her daughter, the next morning. She was 24, but was only eight when her mother's cancer was first diagnosed. Stephanie's mother had Muir-Torre syndrome, a condition that gave her a predisposition for malignancies. So Stephanie had shared her home with cancer for many years and had always seen her mother fight. But she knew that this time was different. The oncology fellow who had been treating her mother as an outpatient was the one to tell her that her mother was dying. Stephanie broke down but understood that there was no use denying it. The dream of a family wedding under the summer sun turned sour. Stephanie called her fiancé that morning, crying she told him the news, but he flipped the fatalistic script. Without hesitation, he told her, I want her to be there too. And he proposed not only to have the wedding done sooner, but to have it done right there in the ICU. Our team was used to dealing with all kinds of crises, but handling a last-minute wedding was not one of them. <laughs> While having more than one opinion on a medical team regarding how best to manage a patient is fairly routine, we received no pushback from anyone as we started to make arrangements for the wedding. Soon, the whole medical team was involved. We sent a letter to the court to expedite the marriage certificate. A pastor and harp player were booked. The hospital cafeteria baked a chocolate cake, and nurses brought in flowers. And in just a few days, we were ready. My job was to make sure our patient's pain was controlled while also avoiding the confusion that is a side effect of narcotic pain medications. But almost miraculously, she didn't need pain medications for hours and was fully aware of everything that was going on. Looking at the bride and groom from her hospital bed, she seemed more comfortable than I'd seen her ever before. The whole day had an unreal feel to it. Everything felt like it slowed down. The sun shone through the windows and glistened on the bags of IV fluid. For once in the hospital, there were tears with no pain. It felt as if after all these years of chasing our patient down, even the cancer took a break. The next morning, the family decided to transition to hospice. No intubation, no CPR, nothing that would prolong life. It was all about trying to make the patient comfortable. In today's outcome-driven, efficiency-obsessed medical world, it's easy to forget that healing patients isn't just about treating diseases and relieving symptoms. There are things that doctors and nurses can do, meaningful interventions like helping patients fulfill goals or spend quality time with their families that cannot be documented on a discharge summary or be converted into a blip on a screen. As a physician, I never liked the word miracle. 
I prefer to think in terms of medical outliers. And yet that day of the wedding did feel like a miracle. Physicians often share their patients' sorrow, but rarely their joys. No, we had not discovered the cure to cancer, but we felt that we had achieved something powerful, freeing, if only temporarily, our patient from her disease. One of the nurses, smiling through her tears, spoke to me after it was all over. It was magical, she said. None of the patient alarms went off. There were so many questions I had you know, during when I was training about death and dying and why things were the way they were and how they came to be that way, but I couldn't find any answers to the specific questions that I had. And, and this search led me to perhaps the most significant creation of my creative life. In my book, Modern Death, How Medicine Changed the End of Life, I tried to find answers to some of these very basic questions like, you know, what is in fact a natural death? Has modern medicine actually increased how much we fear death? And how do patients use social media at the end of life? And one of the things that I learned while I was researching and writing the book was that even though we've gotten great at a lot of things, there, there are actually some aspects of care that we've regressed in. You know, religion and spirituality is just one of those things that is so important to our patients, yet as physicians we have a very difficult time talking about it. So in the book I looked at, you know, I really kind of dove deep into this. I I studied how all the major religions differed in how, um, you know, they um, they treated patients at the end of life, and and I sought answers to some of the most basic questions about how religion and spirituality interplay with patients, especially as death approaches. But as you will see in this next excerpt, which I'm reading from the book, the most important lesson I learned did not come from talking to senior physicians or from researching historical texts, but it came from an entirely different place. For much of history, religion and spirituality were deeply intertwined with medical care. Physicians doubled as shamans and religious hymns doubled as prescriptions. In some societies, that distinction continues to be absent. I remember I was in a community clinic back in Pakistan and a young man came to a family physician for erectile dysfunction. The physician, devout Muslim with a bushy beard, wrote a small paper in Arabic on prescription paper and handed it to the patient. When the patient struggled to recite it, he stopped him abruptly. Say it from your throat, not your mouth. If you don't say it right, it won't work. The patient felt disappointed. Religion, like politics, while a force for good, also evokes impassioned beliefs. In many places in the world, religious differences drive massacres and genocide. While not all people talk about their faith, it remains important for most. Appropriately, perhaps, talk of religion has been taken out of the modern workplace, though many patients do suffer. The distinction between their faith and everything else does not exist for patients the way it does for their doctors, particularly when patients are approaching the end of their mortal lives. The experience is akin to being trapped in a falling building. One reaches out for whatever can be held on to, no matter how frail or slippery. For people, death, death is as much about control as life is. Much as in life, sometimes we present ourselves with illusions of influence. The key to helping patients is helping them find what gives them comfort at a time when their world is falling apart. Julie Knopp, one of the most experienced palliative care specialists in my hospital, told me on a rainy day, 
For some patients, it is their family system or a dear friend who helps them during challenging times. Some people walk in the woods and commune with nature. For someone who has deep faith, they have something they can fall back on, which is so comforting and which they have had for a long time. They've always relied on it when things are difficult." End quote. With these golden words in mind, I found myself at the side of an elderly lady who had been dealt an awful hand. After years of struggle with debilitating rheumatoid arthritis, she developed difficulty breathing. She went to the hospital where a CAT scan showed she had lung cancer. A biopsy showed that it was the most aggressive type, small cell lung cancer. Her disease progressed until she had to be connected to a breathing tube. High-dose chemotherapy was started emergently, and it took multiple failed attempts to take her off the ventilator before finally we were successful. From underneath the fog of anesthesia rose a woman full of humor, full of wit, and full of warmth. She asked the ICU team, so what happens if I decide I don't want all this anymore? She wanted to give intubation a chance, but was definitely against CPR. A week later, though, she was going downhill again. It took every muscle in her body for her to take even a single breath. After I'd exhausted all means, I paged the ICU resident that I would be sending her back to the unit. When I went up to tell her that she was going back, to my surprise, she refused. She had had enough. I didn't know what to make of what she was telling me. She was huffing and puffing, heaving until her nostrils fluttered. This was definitely not when I liked to talk about such decisions, but she surprised me with her lucidity. She had given chemotherapy a chance, and she knew it hadn't worked. She was tired of her trips in and out of the hospital. She told me that the rest of the team at her and the rest of the team at the bedside that she wanted to be comfortable and wanted to be left alone. When we asked her whether she wanted some medications that might make her breathing more comfortable but might make her drowsy, she was fine with that. When asked if she knew there was a chance she would not make it back home, she was completely unfazed. I stood next to her bed as she continued to attend to the show she was watching on the Food Network playing on the television behind my back. She was a frail woman with her hands turned in knots from her arthritis, wearing oversized glasses. She had a stylish haircut. If anything, she seemed too well composed, and it was a situation none of us were used to. Do you want us to call anyone, I asked? No. Do you have any affairs you need to tend to? No. Does religion or spirituality hold any significance in your life, I asked, and she looked at me with an almost incredulous look and replied, no. Do you want to talk to a pastor or priest? No. She was in no rush as she saw the blonde Food Network chef sip on her cocktail and sway as she savored the afternoon delight. Some people need all the help we can give them. They need us to hold their hand, to say a prayer, to talk about their dreams, to go through their pictures, to share their food, to walk with them in the hallways and yearn for pain to go away far away. But there are some who don't need us at all, who are prepared to die as if it were the only thing they knew. So much of humanity's greatest endeavors were forged in the fears of fire, in the fires of fear, religion, medicine, and humor, to name a few. Yet to have someone look death in the face, stare it down with unflinching nonchalance, is still a sight that lifts the heart and testifies to the limitless strength all of us have within. In this book I learned so much, and perhaps the most important lesson I learned 
was that in addition to the search for beauty, there's something quite different that many of us embark on. And that is a search for perfection. Many of us in this room search for equilibrium, whether that is while peering through a microscope or reviewing the annual's revenues and losses. We seek to develop pipes that don't leak, floors that don't creak. We desire an ecosystem without cruelty, where lives can be both long and pain-free. In other words, even as we search for beauty, what we really seek is perfection. To make this point clear, let me share a story of Alexis Carrel. Now, Alexis was a medical student in Lyon when the then president of France was stabbed in front of his very eyes. The president was rushed to the local hospital, but the surgeons there actually could do nothing but stare at the president bleed to death. And that's because they actually didn't know how to suture together severed blood vessels. Now, Alexis was distraught, but he actually didn't turn to any of his professors for answers. He knew they didn't have them. He, in fact, went to the most famous dressmaker in town and learned the art of suturing from her. He then put his skills to work and uh, moved to the United States, and an obituary proclaimed, and I love this, this uh, paragraph, he reunited, quote, vessels, inner lining to inner lining. He sutured artery to artery, vein to vein, artery to vein, and did this end to end, side to side, and side to end. He used patch graphs, autographs, homographs, rubber tubes, glass tubes, metal tubes, and absorbable magnesium tubes. He transplanted the thyroid, spleen, ovaries, limbs, kidneys, and even a heart, and so proved that surgically it was possible and easy to transplant organs. And in 1912, Alexis Carell became the first American Nobel Prize winner in medicine. So, you know, having reached the top of the mountain, you know, mastering surgery and looking for beauty was just not enough for Alexis. He now sought perfection. Specifically, he sought to conquer the greatest imperfection of all, death. Carell believed that left in a perfect solution, a cell is inherently immortal. He believed that if you could create a special medium which was pure, a cell and by extension a human being would live forever. So with funding from the richest man in the world, John Rockefeller, he developed an incubator where he placed externalized chicken heart tissue. He showed that the externalized heart tissue, unlike the normal chicken heart, which was plagued by mortality, kept pulsating for many, many years. In fact, this chicken heart kept beating for 34 years, even past Carell's own death. Carell, though, for all his, all his talents, was actually a fraud. In his quest to create immortality through this chicken heart that beats to perpetuity, he would actually add fresh chicken embryo cells every time the medium was replaced. Cells we know now, in fact, don't replicate infinitely. And to me, the irony is that if Carell had looked hard enough, he could have actually found immortality under a microscope. Because in the world of cells, immortality does in fact have a face, and that is the face of undying and immortal cancer cells. So while as human beings we seek symmetry and we seek perfection, the, in nature, perfection is the opposite of beauty. There are no straight lines in nature. There are no perfect circles. 
it is the real flowers and natural flowers that go bad while the fake ones don't. And if it weren't for imperfections in cell division, there would be no evolution. There would be no complex life. And so the search for perfection is in fact the opposite of the search for beauty. Because what I've learned is that it is imperfection which is the hallmark and the unifying feature of things that are beautiful. So for us to be able to find beauty at the end of life, we have to not only be comfortable with, but expect imperfection. Even the most beautiful and meaningful of lives that end with the most powerful and significant of deaths will leave in their wake a sense of loss that is deeply profound and completely irreplaceable. Few will ever live through life without experiencing pain and suffering. And any story which goes long enough, no matter how enchanting, will always, and I would add, should always, end with death. So death can never be perfect, but if we physicians and nurses and pastors, if we all pay attention to our patients, if we remain fully present for them, if we believe in our hearts that beauty is something that can exist at the end of life and it is something that we can create, especially if we work together, we can ensure that even though death will never be perfect, it can sometimes be beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Arish. Um, so let's take some questions. Just raise your hand and I'll bring the mic to you. Um, so to answer that question, uh, last week I was visiting my friend who lives in this uh, beautiful town called La Crosse in Wisconsin. And what is special about La Crosse is that 99% of all adults in La Crosse have an advanced directive. And do you know why? It's not because of the hospital, it's because of the community. It's because of their churches, it's because of the relationship that the health system there has developed with their community. So I couldn't agree with you more. I think that you know, if you're going to change this, it's not even going to happen in the clinic. We need to, all of us have a responsibility, if, if we choose to take it, to go back into our community, to talk to our people who have nothing to do with medicine, and tell them about why this is important. And that's why, it's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. I think that all of us in this room, we all 
we are, I think most of us are going to be on the same page that it is important, but then we also have to go beyond this room and beyond this hall and beyond the hospital, beyond the clinic, go back to our communities and engage with them. Uh, because the worst time to make a decision is when you can't breathe and someone's, you know, you, you're having to make this really, really difficult choice. Thank you so much, Doctor. Um, one, one of the most disturbing things on the oncology of cancer ward says no fresh flowers. And it, it just seems so contradictory that when people are dying, they have to have dried out plastic flowers. I just wondering if you would comment on that. Sorry, well, I, I, so, so the comment was on. On certain services, oncology services, sure. there's a I mean, sign that says no fresh flowers. I mean, that's just one part of it, right? I mean, I mean, we were just having this discussion about like NPO orders, for example, like how every time someone gets a procedure, we start them all day, even though there's really there's no data to support it. I mean, I was having this. I think I think a lot of people when they but disparagingly they they talk as if hospitals are becoming like hotels, but I feel like well, why don't we become like why, why don't we learn from them? And why don't we make the hospital a place that doesn't have to be this uncomfortable? Yeah. We don't have to have a gown that, you know, you need a PhD to figure out how to recover yourself. <laughs> and, and, and yet, I think that's, that's really, really the key thing is that we need to stop, I think as physicians and as nurses, we need to stop serving ourselves and really start to think about how can we make uh, medicine truly, truly patient-centric. And you know, one of the things I've learned, and you, you, you've been a central figure through this, you were involved in the transcendent case. You've seen that we've come a long way, but we have a long, long, much more longer way to go, and perhaps fresh flowers won't be such a bad thing. <laughs> Can you all hear okay in the back? Can we turn that mic up possibly? I can just use okay, it. So we'll speak from the podium. Sure. Next question. So, so um, you mentioned something towards the beginning that I found really interesting in which you said that as an intern you found the burden of end of life kind of fall upon you. As you progressed through your journey and experienced more in clinical settings, do you still feel it is a burden upon you? And if not, how would you advise medical students or residents in attendees who do feel it to be a burden to kind of change their I mean, I think that's such an such an important thing, and um, and I think you have to start even before internship. I think one of the things that I felt that had been done to me and that we had done is that we tried to shelter our medical students from the end of life because we felt like if we expose them to this sort of area, somehow they'll get burnt out or they'll they won't have you know sort of they they won't have the sort of incentive or sort of the energy to continue. But I feel like but what ends up happening is that when you start training, suddenly you're exposed to all of that. So I think that's certainly one thing that needs to change. The second thing is, you know, as Dr. Chong has mentioned already, it's the narrative around death. If we keep training ourselves and our students and residents that death is the enemy, we're going to lose every single time. Every single time we're going to lose. And so I think that narrative has to change and we really have to start focusing 
non, not just on the fact that we have to sort of prevent death, and which is important for a lot of patients, but if when death is inevitable, how can we make the most of it? How can we allow patients to, and their loved ones to be as whole as possible in what is certainly a very, very difficult time? Um, what I will say is that I, I, you know, my experience has been that younger physicians who are training are much more sort of in tune with things like palliative care and because that's such an integral part of our training. And so I do think that the culture will change, but it is, uh, I wish it were, it were sooner. I think, you know, in, in some ways, I, I'm, I'm not one of those who you know, is always yearning for nostalgia, but, you know, my grandmother, when she died in Pakistan, she died in the village, and her body was there, and all of us saw it. And, but what has happened here is that we don't see, not just a good death, we don't see death at all as in the community as it's something that's really been sort of become so complex, it's become so technical, it's almost like you need a medical degree just to die. Um, I mean, I think that what we need to do is, I think as a community, we need to talk about it more, but I, I do want to stay, take a step back as well, because you know, one of the things is that death has been the most taboo subject in the history of humankind since we were, we've been here. Um, and I think the fact that you know I can write this book and people can talk about it, or Tul Gawande can write a book and that people want to, you know, um, really, really engage with it, does make me feel that yes, the yes, there is a change that is going, that is ongoing. So I'm as much as I would like for things to be faster, as much as I would like to have for people to have really, really honest conversations, 
about debt in a personal way, not in an abstract way. Um, I think we will, um, all of us can be a part of that movement, for sure. And I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. Um, I'm a emeritus medicine master's student, and um, I'm a sleep activist, advocating for healthy sleep as a basic human right. And I'm wondering, uh, I've been writing a little bit recently, and I'm wondering if you've ever pondered our culture's fear of sleep as a mirror to our fear of death. Well, I know in the hospital we aren't good at letting people either die or sleep. <laughs> so, but certainly you would think that, you know, I, I think this is one of the, I think this is what makes for, for a conscious being, for a sentient being to imagine its own lack of existence seems like an oxymoron. It's almost like our sphere. People can't imagine not existing, even though we kind of do it every day uh, at night when we sleep. Um, so, but yet it remains such a foreign idea that how can we not exist? Like how how can how can our soul not exist, even though we kind of do it all the time? I will say that you're probably thinking about this on a much more advanced level than I am. Um, but I do think that in some ways I fear euphemizing death, I think the way forward is actually to talk death for what it is. I think the more we try and use words like passed away or went to the next plane or whatever, I think we should just talk, we, just call, we should just call death death. We should just talk about it as it is. We should stop it from hiding behind metaphors. That's my own personal bias because I think that we, we've taken it to such an extreme that you know when, when we actually use the word death in front of a patient, it's like they've never heard that word before. Um, so, but but I do think that that's a very very fascinating concept. Yes, ma'am. Hello. Um, I had a question about I guess old, we, we as a society and as normal people think that dying is also a failure on our part for not being able to live longer or when we see our loved ones die, we sometimes just feel like we have nailed them. But um, I know, well, I have a chronic illness and uh, that's been affecting me and my family for a while. But um, how do you talk to, or how do you weigh, I guess, life with chronic illnesses of, and death? Since sometimes I feel like on a hard day, like dying would be a lot easier since chronic, life with a chronic illness is so difficult. And how can you relay that information to a newly diagnosed patient? Well, thank you so much for, for sharing that. And I think this is, goes to a previous question about you know, how do you alleviate the sense of failure that people feel when you know we, we talk about death and I always talk about focusing on the process so I mean so if some if a bad thing happens in the hospital if for example something bad happens a patient dies well you know was did I try my best did I do what I was supposed to do and were the plate were the pieces in place that let me perform to the best of my abilities 
that's what I that's I think what we need to focus on because we can't always affect the outcome in the best of hands in the best caregiver's hands in the best person's hand illness will one day you know will will succeed no matter how good you, your medical team is no matter how good your medical training is no matter how much you care for yourself or others care for you but what we can do and the only thing we can control is the outcome um, can and uh, sorry is the is the process and I think that that the more we shift towards that and the less we shift towards the outcome I think the more we can kind of go move away from thinking of that as a failure because we have to do better as a, as a, as a, in, as, a as a fellow if I have a patient uh, who's a heart transplant patient a recent patient passed away and I kept going back and I kept going back and I kept thinking what did I miss what did I miss what did I miss it's I think it's natural to feel that way. But in the end, we did everything that we could. We didn't, we didn't drop the ball because we don't want to fail someone else. Um, but yeah, so I think the more we focus on the outcome, the more we focus on the day-to-day -day things that we need to do, are we doing those right? I think the more we can be less affected by the outcome, which truly none of us can control. Take a question here and then questions in the back. Your talk. Um, my mom gave her body to this hospital to the anatomy students, and they, this narrative medicine program had a lovely ceremony for the family. So people did that. So I wanted to acknowledge that. Anyone here is in charge of that program. But I also had a question about the role that the sort of you might call it medical or hospital insurance industrial complex or whatever. What role, you know, if there's a way that you're thinking about working with that whole thing where everything has to be quantified down to the last speck, you know. And if it plays a role in you know, there's no like thing to check off for dying or you know. I mean, I don't know. You know, I think some of it is some of it is inevitable, and you know, I'll share. So the first the first guy who, for example, developed uh, uh, sort of catheters to help open up arteries, he did it in the in his kitchen sink. Every time you'd have a patient, he'd make a new thing for each one of his patients. And when that technology developed, and just like medicine, it went from being this cottage industry to being like this huge empire. Uh, every fifth dollar in this country goes to healthcare. And so the bigness comes in the way of some of the things that you're talking about. But you know, I do think that things like, you know, I think a lot of physicians and uh, you know, kind of poo-poo on things like patient satisfaction. But I think those are important things. I think those are metrics of how well are we communicating. Uh, they may not be necessarily related to outcomes, but certainly the more, I mean, I think we can come up with a system in which we can measure these things. Why can't, if, if, if only we asked the question. I think if we do start asking patients and their caregivers, would you refer this hospital to someone else? Would you refer this to a family member after your experience? If we even actually, the one, so right now, Medicare assesses the um, experience of patients through this survey. And the only patients who don't get assessed are patients who die. 
and I think that that's a big gaping hole. Like it doesn't make sense that the patients who had the most sort of intense exposure to the healthcare system were not actually assessing their experience and then sending it back to the hospitals so that they can improve what they do. But I do think that we can find a way in which we can be humane and we can measure it and then we can implement it so that we can change. I don't think that we can have a system in which we don't do that just because of how big healthcare is and because of how many different parties are involved. Um, thank you, Dr. Arish, for um, your presentation and investing your time to us. Um, this question, my name is Jonathan, this question also probably question P2, people. So um, the question is about um, how to communicate death to um, our patients, because um, in your presentation, you, you discussed how uh, your patient wanted to go to her daughter's wedding, but you stayed silent. And I just wanted to understand, especially in the era of like personalized medicine, how do we communicate effectively to our patients' death? And because like after all, they don't care about how much we know until they know how much we care. So we want to show that we should we care to our patients, especially during that time of death. So, so I think it's uh, so you know I think increasingly medical schools are you know really really thinking about this. The fact that we have this group that you know Rita is sort of leading is I think. I mean, this is this is a sign of change. Like, could, could you have imagined 20 years ago this group existing? I don't, I don't think so, but I think, like, the work that has been done by people like Rita and people at other medical schools who are really, really interested in developing these skills is really starting to now, now show. But I, I do think as far as, um, as far as when patients actually do die, unfortunately, is concerned, I think freeing up, uh, some of it is just that you know, some freeing up the physician's time so that they can be with the patient and with their, with, not with the patient, but with their loved ones, I think is extremely important. A lot of times when these things happen, you're, you're in the middle of the night, you have 60 patients you're covering, and um, if a patient dies, there are like five other patients who are sick who need, need your help. So I think coming up with a systematic way to not only create time for clinicians to just be present, you don't, we don't have to do anything special, we just have to be there. And families need to know that we were there and that we, we, we tried everything if, if, in fact, the patients were full code. Um, and I think that that makes a huge difference. So the, the example of this is uh, there was this interesting trial that was done in France um, in which they um, wanted to see what was the effect uh, on family members if they saw their loved one getting CPR or not. Uh, so there are two groups. In one group, the family members witnessed CPR. And in the other group, they did not witness CPR. You know, they were sort of shielded from it. And the families that witnessed CPR had actually less PTSD, less depression, less anxiety, all these things. Because A, um, they, were, they felt like, well, everything was done. But also B, one of the things that was in the sort of, not in the main paper, but in the protocol was that the families who witnessed, they had a special person who came to them and spoke to them afterwards. We spoke to them not only then, but after like they had left the hospital. And that resulted in them having less sort of trauma. I don't think it was the act of seeing CPR as much as knowing that someone cared and was there and was a witness to whatever they felt. So I think we can do that both sort of systematically, but also at a personal level when we are training clinicians and students. Thank you. Question here. Um, thank you so much. I just, um, I found myself uh, being a little emotional as I was listening to you. Um, what I connected with most was about uh, when people think that death is an enemy, um, think of it as an enemy. 
I had a sister who uh, passed away um, some years ago and had left two um, teenage children, which my husband and I um, became guardians and took care of them. Uh, but her sickness was of embarrassment and uh, of concealment. And so one of the things that you said is that um, healing is not just to talk about the disease. It's not like as though someone, uh, a doctor or a nurse fills out discharge papers, you know. It's about being able to talk to the person while they're going through what they're going through, whether they're going to live or they're, they're no, no longer going to be with us on this earth. And um, one of the things that, um, that moved me is that uh, it caused the concealment and the embarrassment caused the children to harbor those kind of feelings too. So then they could never really get through. I mean, this is years, and I'm sitting here with tears in my eyes listening to you because I just received something that helped to bless me. And so I just wanted to say uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for sharing that. Take one more question. Thank you, Dr. Your talk, and I very much look forward to reading your book. Uh, one thing I wanted to say is I come here not as a physician, um, but I had a period of about 10 years where I was a caregiver and an advocate for three family members who were in the hospital almost simultaneously. And I truly appreciate what you talked about changing the narrative around death. And one of the things, um, I guess that I want to point out for anyone here who is in medicine is that obviously we're talking about death is not the enemy, but when we encountered one or two physicians who gave permission to the families and to those who are struggling, the patients, to not fight anymore, it was incredibly liberating and freeing. I think the culture of medicine and the culture of our society is to fight, and that is why we think of death as the enemy, particularly, I think, in medical school, because you're trained to do everything possible to save someone. Um, and I think it's so important, as the palliative care specialist mentioned, that it's, even in the community, we have to learn that it's okay not to fight at a certain point. And I witnessed my grandmother in particular think she had to fight for us or for other people, even when she did not want to. Um, so I think changing that narrative is, is community-wide. Uh, but I also just wanted to ask you about hospice. So I had an incredibly uh, beautiful experience with hospice on three occasions. And the training in hospice is very patient-centered. And there was a real understanding of giving that permission and um, making the patient's voice heard and making them comfortable and also attending to the family in a very, I don't even want to say nurturing, but in a very just whole way. Um, just eyes focused on them. And I'm wondering if there's any training that hospice workers are given that could also be done in the workflow physicians as well. So that there is that knowledge that at a certain point fighting is okay to I think some of it is, uh, so, I, so I agree with you, and um, 
it's it's striking how many people use the word palliative care and beauty and hospice together. And I try not to be prescriptive. I don't tell people this is a good death, this is a bad death, but I've certainly seen that. I think some of it is just selection bias, that the, page, that the people who go into hospice care are truly people who believe in that and that they believe that that is the right thing to do and that there's no shame in not trying to get the latest uh, sort of, you know, chemotherapy or whatever or experimental trial. Um, but, I, but I absolutely agree. I mean, I think that so many times the caregivers are right in front of us and we, we don't see them as clinicians and they're struggling. Um, and certainly as, as the intensity of treatment grows, uh, that caregiver burden actually goes up. Um, I do think that now this, the idea of caregiver burden has become and sort of an established thing. Uh, certainly when we are sort of rounding on our patients, we are seeing them, we have a lot of patients who have mechanical assist devices, patients who have been transplanted. We are really, really attending to the caregivers too because we know that our success is, and the patient's success depends on how well the caregiver can cope and, and can be. So I, I do think that it is changing. Uh, there's a rich body of literature now. There's a lot of research in this area as well. So I do think that it is getting better, but a lot of times they suffer silently and no one re even pays attention. Let's take one more question. <laughs> uh, so this might be a little different from a lot of things that you're asking, but um, with your view on this matter, uh, how does that has it changed or shaped your view on like physician death? So, um, so when I wrote the book, I was right. I was I, I was writing the book, um, and it was at that time that physician assisted death went on the ballot in Massachusetts. And most of our physicians at that time, the senior physicians, they were very opposed to it, even though sort of the public was kind of a bit, you know, it was fifty fifty. It was narrowly defeated. Um, so I went in really not feeling like it was the right thing to do. And yet the more I read about it, the more research I looked at, there's so much data that's come out of Oregon. I, the first thing I realized in the book and is that death really sucks, right? And so if someone is dying and someone is terminally ill, why should I, it is not a question of whether they're gonna die or not. They're, they're going to die. And if they want to have some semblance of autonomy on what that would look like, who am I as a physician to come in their way? So it was actually during the course of the book that I came to the realization that I think that that's, I think that especially if you look at how the laws are designed in the United States, you need to have a terminal diagnosis, you need to make sure you have no psychiatric illness, you need to have two physicians look at it. Um, a third of patients never use their pills. Because to them, just knowing that if things get out of hand, that they have a way out, is I think empowering enough. So, for me, through reading the, through researching the book, writing it, and then following it, I strongly feel that if if someone is terminally ill and they're going to die anyways, and they want to control the circumstances of that, what that death is going to be like, or when that's going to be, I'm supportive of that. Uh, it's evident kind of for everyone in this room that you're exploring these topics in earnest. And uh, it's very humbling and uh, enriching to be a part of this conversation with you. And you're also someone who has brought together the roles of writer, of scholar, uh, and clinician in a way that truly embodies what we're trying to foster in area medicine. Um, and I want to thank you for shining a light on this topic that
I think, uh, remains in the dark for most people, most communities. Um, and if we're able to shine some light on this topic, we might be able to actually grapple with it and bring about situations that allow some healing for patients and families. So join me in thanking you.